And so farmers and the military and, and hospital med techs, they are all kind of macrocosms for us because, you know, while it's, it's entirely possible that your phone screen will crack on a day when you don't really need it, or that, you know, your cars uh, will stop working on a day where you don't need to go anywhere in particular. We all know that like Murphy's Law says you run out of printer ink the day you need to print out your your thesis or your lease or your parole application, that your car only breaks down when, you know, you, you need to get to work. Otherwise, you're going to miss a promotion. Like all of this stuff only happens when you really, really need it. Uh, and And the idea that like someone sitting in a boardroom five years and a thousand miles from where you are right now when your stuff stops working knows better than you what trade-offs you should make about repair, right? Like whether it's worth trusting your corner repair guy, whether, whether you know, you, you're willing to use third-party parts or third-party ink. You know, every time HP does something unbelievably sleazy and I get on the phone with their people, they're like, well, you know, some of those third-party inks fade. <laughs> the idea that like some arrogant group of product designers who are thinking more about their shareholders than their customers and who know very well that their customers won't encounter these failure modes until long after they have a lot of costs sunk into the product and that no journalist is going to report on how these products fail, only on how they succeed. That idea is so obviously wrong. And like every one of us has lived it. Every one of us has been there. Hey everybody, welcome back to What The Fix Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Roberts, publisher of Fight To Repair. And I'm Jack Monahan, co-editor of Fight To Repair. Hey, welcome back, Jack. Good to be with you, Paul. Yeah, so this is the um, this is the fifth What The Fix Podcast. And um, as is our habit, we're going to do a little Right To Repair news roundup, just bring you the latest news from around the globe as we do every week on uh, Fight uh, to Repair, uh, our Substack, and um, And then we're going to go on and have a really interesting interview. Jack, uh, tell us about our guest this week. Yeah, our guest this week is Corey Doctorow, who uh, a lot of you probably know. This was a conversation uh, a little bit earlier last year uh, talking about CES, but there are a lot of, you know, common threads that we're seeing from that conversation that have just played out in real time. And so it's very interesting to see the predictions that Corey makes and just seeing what comes true. Um, so very interesting conversation. And uh, funnily enough, in our news roundup, Corey mentioned uh, something about DRM this week on his blog. So we're going to be talking about that. So very good timing. Yeah. So uh, point point uh, to be taken. This was a pre-recorded interview actually recorded back when uh, right around CES time. So um, just keep that in mind because any of our questions seem a little dated. Um, but before we do that, um, it's time to do our repair news roundup. And um, how, how about, uh, why don't you start Jack and then, uh, and then I'll go. Yeah, definitely. I found a somewhat unconventional news piece this week that was around a kind of a platform, a technology platform in the Netherlands created by a uh, like an academic or a student up there that created a platform for repair exchange, I guess you would call it. And essentially what that means is they're allowing people to swap repairs for one another. So you fix my chair, I'll fix your, you know, your couch, I'll fix your jeans. Yeah. So barter, so barter, basically. Yeah, yeah, essentially. And a lot of it has to do with or the the motivation behind it is really lowering the threshold for repair. So if you don't necessarily know how to fix something, but I know, you know, how to do sewing, I can find somebody that can do like welding or do some like, you know, very light, um, you know, handiwork. And we can find, you know, we can find that um, that middle ground. And basically what it does is it creates kind of a bigger sense of community around repair, which I think is the same spirit as let's say a repair cafe or, 
you know, a tool, um, a tool library essentially. So I think it's just like another form, but I think kind of has like mutual aid vibes to me, which I think has been a very interesting place. Um, and also just the technology component. So it's very localized, very specific to this, like one area in the Netherlands, but interested to see if it'll take off or if the model is of any interest to people outside of that area. Absolutely. And I mean, we're seeing just in our kind of news, you know, our, our, our review of the news are definitely seeing a lot more on uh, tool libraries popping up in, in different communities, um, West Coast, East Coast, uh, and definitely a lot of interest in that, you know, the utilization rate for all the, you know, power drills and circular saws sitting in your basement is really low, as you probably realize. <laughs> but there's somebody in your community who wants one. So that's that's the, a huge interest of mine. I'm looking to like start one of those in my community. And this is kind of the next step, which is not just kind of providing access to repairers in your community, but even kind of swapping services, you know, for, for other stuff that you need. It's cool. That's definitely cool. Okay, so my first story is um, actually a story that we reported on on Fight to Repair um, news, uh, a Fight to Repair newsletter. And um, it is on Epson's um, disclosure. Well, not really. I mean, yeah, disclosure via their website that um, actually some of their printers, uh, particularly this L-series inkjet printer, are basically kind of programmed with an end of life. And this was something that I got turned on to via um, a tweet um, from a gentleman who's uh, a professor, academic, and who was complaining that his uh, wife had uh, an Epson inkjet printer that she used and relied on. It was working great. And then all of a sudden this message popped up saying, um, you know, one of the components of your printer has reached the end of its service life. And, um, you know, kind of with a link to click to learn more, we click on that link. It basically says, yeah, you know, you should probably um, get a new printer. Um, but if you want to, you know, you can also call, uh, you know, an Epson authorized service provider and get it serviced. When you dig into this, you realize um, basically that the part they're talking about is this thing called the ink pads, which are basically sponges inside your printer that just absorb old printer ink uh, for print jobs. Over time, obviously, they get saturated with ink and um, I guess could overfill potentially. Um, and so Epson has um, programmed in what's basically a counter because they're not they're not actually measuring the saturation level of these sponges. They basically just have a software counter that when it reaches a certain threshold, which is judging from the screenshot I saw, 6,207 or something like that. I'm not sure if that's pages or what, it's something. Um, then this message pops up and say, oh, you've, you know, this part is at the end of its life and you need to um, get your printer serviced or get a new printer. FYI, you know, you probably want to get a new printer because there's, you know, uh, the other the other parts in your printer are also at the end of their life. That's kind of on Epson's website. Um, we wrote about the fact that if you go on YouTube, actually, these printer pads are not um, end of life material. There are a lot of videos from folks with Epson printers showing them basically doing DIY repair and replacement of these sponges with new fresh sponges. Um, so that's, that's kind of, you know, we're going to call them out on that. The other thing, of course, is are you disclosing to people when they buy your inkjet printer that there's a hard-coded end of life in this? Because the way the utility works is you only get to use it once. You can't run it. You can run a utility to reset the counter, but only once. And actually only if you're a Windows user, there's no Mac version of the utility. After that, once that threshold is reached again, the printer is essentially dead. There's no way to reset it. Um, and so it raises this question of, you know, is is this you know is is the company being honest with consumers that when they're buying this printer, it's not a matter of hey I, maybe I can just keep it running for ten years like it's got a software based end of life um, that's that's a feature of the printer um, and that might be something that consumers want and need to know about so. I put it out there. I thought it was kind of an interesting story. It's it didn't, printer. <laughs> everybody's got an inkjet printer. A lot of people do. I don't know. It didn't do that well. I don't know. <laughs> it didn't really. Didn't piss people off as much as it pissed me off. But whatever. Yeah. I'm gonna Obviously. flog it. I'm gonna. I'm flogging it on this podcast one more time Good. just to try and spark the outrage. Get outraged. Whip okay. the people up. Whip them up. 
Yeah, no, it is. It's this also, this gets into my next story, but there, it's just so interesting how companies just wait until you're like, you know, a year into your device. You know, it's like who actually reads like, you know, the Apple terms of service or like, you know, user license agreements. But it's like it always this stuff always happens. Like once it becomes just inconvenient enough for yes. you to not want to return it or not want to fix it. And yes. so like if, when it becomes more convenient for you to just buy a new one, that's right. when the stuff kicks in. So there, it's very strategic in that way. Right. And I mean, for us, you know, here on this blog and podcast as well. I mean, the, you know, it's, it's a mindset, right? I mean, those videos show you like, this is, this is a repair that anyone could do. You know, Epson could be selling replacement ink pads, you know, that are, that are designed to work with its gear. Cause they'll YouTube, they're like cutting up sponges and fitting them into these parts. But I mean, Epson could just sell those sponges, you know, already pre-fit, make a little money on it and prolong the useful life of these printers. But the message from the company is no, 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 don't fix it recycle it, which we know is, you know, at most 40% of that printer is actually going to get recycled. The rest is going to become e-waste um, and get a new printer because, you know what, even if you fix the, the, the sponge, something else is going to break because frankly, it's kind of how we designed it. Um, that's just got, that's a business model that we just as a species, I think need to put a stop to <laughs> because we only got one planet. There is no planet B and um, that's just not a sustainable business model. Yes. Anyway. But, no, I do. I agree. I think like, you know, when you're driven, when these companies are driven by short term profits, quarterly goals, you know, printer sales will become, you know, their metric for success quarter to quarter. And so when you're thinking about short term growth, that's what they're yes. focused on. They're not thinking about long term retention of customers necessarily. That's so, right. And unless they hear from either regulators, right, which is one audience they care about or consumers like, hey, this is not, you know, we expect companies to design products that are sustainable, repairable, serviceable, renewable, long lasting, right, to reduce our footprint. Um, then they're going to keep up with it. Why wouldn't they not? That's much that's much more profitable to them. If you can sell four printers in a 10 year period instead of one. Um, that's great. Yeah. 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 Uplifting. Uplifting, Paul. Mm -hmm. um, on on this equally uplifting note, uh, there's a piece written by Corey Doctorow this week about why he doesn't have his books on Audible. And so mm -hmm. I know I knew nothing really about like DRM or, you know, audiobooks generally. But a couple of things that I found out that were pretty interesting was one, Amazon owns Audible. Uh, did not know that. Second of all, Audible owns like 90% of the market in certain verticals. So that means that if you're using like another platform on some of these verticals, um, then, you know, you're, you're missing like 90% of the audiobook market. And why that becomes a problem is because Amazon wants to have rights over your, um, you know, your IP and like the files that you upload. So um, an audiobook can cost like apparently like thousands upon thousands of dollars to make, uh, like did, had no idea that that was a thing. But what happens is, is that normally what would happen is, you know, you get an MP3 or a file if it's not necessarily on the platform and you own that just like you would own anything else. You bought it, you get to do with it what you will. With subscription-based services like Audible, they actually, the platform itself is regulating, you know, who gets to see it, who gets to see these audiobooks and, you know, who gets to see them when. So what they can do is they can drop off books after you own them. So it's not necessarily like, you know, you buy a book at the bookstore, you get to keep that for life, you get to read it as many times as you want, get to gift it to somebody else. It's just linked to your account. It, it can be revoked at any point in time. And so Corey is very principled in the sense that he didn't want to, you know, give, give up his stance on DRM. So he didn't put his stuff on Audible. But at the same time, if he wanted to, you know, put it on Audible, and then like, show people another way to get it. That's actually like a felony under DMCA, which is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, um, which was signed for those who don't know in 1998 by Bill Clinton, which um, you know created a lot of harsh restrictions around stuff like IP and digital, um, digital files like MP3s and audiobooks. Right. right, and one of the things about, about DMCA section 1201 is one of the things that it prohibits is, is you know, kind of um, making circumvention tools uh, available. 
Um, so I guess if he were to, yeah, be talking about how to circumvent Audible's DRM, he would be, you know, kind of trafficking in that type of information, which is, uh, you know, outlawed as part of the DMCA. And what makes it even crazier and what he points to is, you know, this goes beyond audiobooks. So like audiobooks are just like a specific example that you can easily wrap your head around. Where it gets kind of weird is when you think about the stuff that, you know, we put inside our bodies or put our bodies inside of, as he says. So you think medical devices, you think like autonomous cars. If, you know, you're not able to check and audit and test the software, for the machines that you own, you are putting your livelihood in the hands of companies that don't necessarily care about your well-being. And when it's not audiobooks and it is whether your car is going to crash or not or whether your pacemaker is going to work, that is a very different set of stakes. And this is just kind of a, as we like to say here, a canary in the coal mine for something very bigger as we know that IoT is going to expand and continue to expand into like every corner of the world. One of the problems with this is even where the, the Librarian of Congress has created an exemption for some types of products like, uh, you know, tractors. So saying, oh, well, you, you have an exemption to Section 1201. You can, um, you know, uh, do repair and service um, and circumvent digital locks on your tractor. What it prevents is somebody from saying, well, I've developed a software tool that will actually help you do that and make that repair easy. Here it is. Download it and use it yourself. No, you can't do that. So in essence, every farmer has to be a ninja hacker, figure out how to circumvent the digital locks on their own tractor, but can't share that information with anybody else because then they're trafficking in these circumvention tools. So it's like it's it's a real problem and it's something that really needs to be addressed. There have been efforts for a long time to try and reopen Section 1201, reconsider the DMCA in light of this stuff, but haven't gotten anything done yet. So. Um, okay, so my um, uh, second piece is on the announcement that just came out uh, that Samsung and iFixit have gone live with their uh, offering genuine Samsung parts and repair tools for a range of uh, Samsung phones and tablets. And this is the... Um, uh, culmination of uh, a you know a lot of collaboration between Samsung and uh, iFixit, Kyle Ween's uh, company, to make toolkits and parts available to Samsung device owners so that they can do their own repair. So this is. Um, a program that's limited right now to, I think, the Galaxy, I'm just reading, Galaxy S20 uh, and S21 families, as well as the Galaxy Tab S7 tablets. Um, so it's not all Samsung products, um, but it's a lot of them, and you can um, buy standalone parts, uh, replacement parts, uh, glasses, batteries, um, chargers, and other you know commonly uh, common components of brakes, as well as repair kits to uh, facilitate the repair. So this is just this is just a great development. Um, it's not a legal right to repair. We still need that, um, and you know, hopefully, uh, the New York governor will soon sign the uh, repair digital repair law in that state, and we'll get it. Um, but this is a really big step forward, and I think it just shows that you know you got a major. Uh, uh, personal electronics manufacturer here, Samsung, who is signing on really to this, um, you know, notion that uh, its customers should be able to service and repair their own stuff. And I think that's that's just great news. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, Samsung's doing it. They're, they're, they're a company, you know, they're a big player. So I think that that definitely sets the tone. So. Okay, so um, up next is our uh, interview for this week, Corey Doctorow, who is, I mean, if you haven't, if you don't follow Corey online, you definitely should um, on, on Twitter. He's very active on Twitter. He's got um, his uh, own, well, he was co-founder of um, the site boingboing.net. Um, and he's got his own uh, site, which is uh, Crap Pound. Uh, and he also has a um, uh, site called Pluralistic um, that you should definitely check out, um, which is just, as he calls it, an old fashioned link blog where he posts like daily lists of, of links and commentary and analysis and stuff. He's been one of the most um, prolific and well-regarded um, commentators and writers. He's a fiction writer. 
as well as an essayist um, and uh, on these on these issues, these issues of intellectual property, um, repair. He was kind of talking about issues like repair long before anybody else. DRM is a, is a, is a you know personal uh, area of interest for him. Um, and this is just a great conversation where we talk about a lot of that in the context of CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, which is an orgy of unfixable stuff. <laughs> an orgy, indeed. And um, in fact, I've been part of the uh, Worst of Show um, event for the past few years where we, we pick through all the stuff that, that gets you know unveiled at CES and pick just the most, you know non-circular, unfriendly, unrepairable stuff. Um, and that's been, a, that's been a lot of fun. So um, check out our interview with Corey. And uh, Jack, uh, other, other business for listeners? Yeah, definitely. We are up and running on every major podcasting platform. We would appreciate if you give us a five-star review. It helps people find the show. If you're not already subscribed to Fight to Repair Substack, do that. We also offer premium options which give you early access to episodes like these, as well as give you access to things like video interviews. Absolutely. So check us out at fighttorepair.substack.org. You can um, sign up for a free subscription. You can sign up for a premium subscription and get access to a lot of this content early, um, as well as other you know, interesting stuff, um, original reporting and commentary and so on. So here we go. Corey, uh, welcome to the What the Fix podcast. It's so great to have you on. Um, so we have obviously What the Fix. We're, we're talking about the right to repair, yes, and also just the whole constellation of issues that are around right to repair, and there are so many of them. Um, but I have you on because you, uh, and I've had you speak at events I've, I've done on, on security and the Internet of Things, and I've had you on my podcast a number of times. You just... You have been writing and talking about this larger issue of concentration of wealth and power, monopolies, um, you know, exclusionary um, business fact practices longer than many people. Um, and, you know, what can I say? The, and you've written about it both in fiction and, and in nonfiction. And, um, you know, your dystopian predictions for the future, by and large, are, are coming to, coming to <laughs> fruition. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, let me let me gently say that I do not make predictions because science fiction writers are not Nostradamus, and the ones who think they are making predictions are smoking their own product, and it never ends well. So, I, I, I am describing parables about things that are going on today, and so the fact that they continue to go on is is not so much a predictive acumen as observational acuity. Maybe, uh, you know, William Gibson calls it predicting the present. So for, for our listeners who might not be familiar with you, can you kind of give the the elevator pitch on, on Cory Doctorow and who you are and, and what your interests are? Yeah. <laughs> and passions. I, though. I, I mean, I, so I, I'm now a British citizen. I used to live in the UK, but before I became a citizen, every time I came back into the UK, I would have to fill in a landing card and it had like a quarter inch long field for you to write occupation. <laughs> and I always struggled with it. Uh, and you know, when my grandmothers were alive, they would say, I try to explain what you do to my friends, but I can't, uh, what is your job again? <laughs> so, um, I am a science fiction novelist, uh, and, uh, other kinds of writer. I've written middle grades books. I've written books for uh, picture books for little kids, uh, collections of essays, book length nonfiction on the creative industries, the economy and technology, uh, as well as, um, science fiction for adults and young adults. Uh, and essay collections and short story collections, more than 20 books, uh, many of them New York Times bestsellers. I'm also just about to celebrate my 20th anniversary of my affiliation with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a nonprofit that I've worked with uh, for a very long time in a lot of capacities, including as their former European director. Today, I'm a special advisor, and the project I work on is related to uh, digital restrictions, technology restrictions, and monopoly. Um, I uh, have some uh, sort of pretend academic things that I do. I'm a visiting professor of computer science at The Open University and a visiting professor of library science at uh, the University of North Carolina and a research affiliate at the MIT Media Lab. And I helped found an, an analog to the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation in the UK called the Open Rights Group. So that's, that's a pretty good 
CV for me. I, I grew up in Toronto. Uh, then I lived in Central America and San Francisco, then in London, became a British subject citizen. Uh, now I live just outside of Los Angeles in Burbank. Um, and we're talking uh, this this week. We're t- as we're talking, I guess uh, the Consumer Electronics Show um, is going on, which is a sort of yearly um, orgy of um, stuff. And uh, it, we're actually going to be speaking um, not long after this podcast uh, to to highlight some of the worst in show. Um, but maybe if you could kind of um, give us your thoughts on, um, you know, Consumer Electronics Show is obviously a celebration of consumer culture and consumer technology. Um, I'm really interested in what you think of the Consumer Electronics Show and maybe some of some of the changes that you've seen kind of over the last couple of decades in, in the types of news and, and products that are being highlighted there. So, I, I, you know, one of the things I didn't mention that I do is uh, journalism, including tech journalism and also some investigative journalism. And I have attended CES as a Wired correspondent um, and also as a representative for EFF staffing our booth. So I've been there in lots of different capacities at lots of different times. And um, I have, a, I guess, a long run view of the of the show. And I think that where my... Uh, where my break with the way that most tech reporters cover cover CES came was in the mid 2000s when Wired did an edition a special edition of gadget reviews that was kind of like CES in print form uh of like it was a bit like a, a kind of early version of wire cutter where it was like these are the five stereos that you should be thinking about this year and these are the six mp3 players and what right. have you Right. And I looked at all these things. They all had digital rights management in them. Mm-hmm. And I'd been pretty in the weeds with digital rights management standardization with the Electronic Frontier Foundation at the time. And I realized that all of the features that were being lauded by the magazine, by the reporters, my colleagues, were all features that were contingent, that the electronics manufacturers could and did take away those features when it became commercially expedient to do so. If at a certain time in the future, um, say a rights holder body decided that a feature was um, a deal killer for getting access to their library for say a video player, they might just take that feature away. So like your video recorder might just go away one day, you wake up mm-hmm. one day and then you've had a software update and it doesn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I wrote uh, like an, uh, a review of the review magazine for Boing Boing, which is a website that I co-own and, and co-edited for 19 years. It was one of the original blogs. And um, I said it, like- It really was, yeah. I mean, Boing, Boing Boing was kind of one of the the first big kind of, yeah, arts and culture, yeah. you know, kind of culture yeah, blog. Yeah, it really yeah, cut my teeth culture there. Blogs. Yeah. For sure. Congratulations. So, Thank you for giving us Boing Boing. <laughs> well, I'm glad that it's still going. Uh, yeah. But 19 years with it was long enough for anyone. Yeah. So, so the the- I wrote this this review that said, like, you can't trust the advice in this review guide because the thing that's missing from this review guide is uh, the warning that the features that you might buy this device for could be rescinded without notice, uh, without recourse, and that the calculus that would go into whether or not to rescind it would take place in a smoke-filled room that you weren't access able to access and that no one would tell you what was going on. And so you, you couldn't even handicap the odds of this feature versus that feature. And I, and I realized that it was basically impossible to look at a connected gadget and decide whether or not you wanted to own it because it, it didn't matter what was on the spec sheet. The spec sheet was not a promise. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the editor-in-chief of Wired at the time, Chris Anderson, I think is a very good guy and, and was smart about technology, wrote a thing saying, no, 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 this is not something normies care about. Uh, this is, this is uh, you know, kind of in the weeds tech policy stuff. This is like the disease of tech reporters of thinking that the things that matter to tech reporters matter to people who buy technology. And, and I think he was like, well, at, at this point, I think he was 100% wrong and that he's I, I, he's been proven 100% wrong, even though he's a smart guy who's been right about a lot of other things, because the thing that you um, 
the the thing that you want from a guide like that, if you're a normie, if you're a civilian, is specifically to be warned about the esoteric things that might bear down on the very specific reasons that you are buying the gadget, right? Like the reason you bought the gadget and, and opted into its ecosystem and bought all the other gadgets that go with the gadget that require the gadget and the gadgets at the center of that you built it into your walls. Maybe if we're talking about like home theater stuff or, or designed your kitchen or, or other parts of your home around the reason you did all of that is because you trusted the review to signpost the pitfalls. And if the review can't signpost those pitfalls, then the review might as well, you might as well just throw a dart, right? Uh, that, that all the review is telling you about is how the device works and not how it fails. And as a tech consumer, you can go into any showroom. This was back when they had showrooms. You could go into any showroom and the, a salesman would show you how it worked. The job of the reviewer was to tell you how it failed and so that you could make that choice. And, and I think, you know, CES today is 100% devoted to how gadgets work and that we still live in a world in which most people don't understand how they can fail, not until it's too late, not until you've bought like a whole home automation system, right. um, as many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people did, and then saw it sold to Google and then saw Google just brick all the devices in that ecosystem. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, we uh, we see this all the time now of of products that are some of them quite expensive that uh, suddenly are um, bricked by uh, us usually via you know withdrawal of of uh, cloud servers that continue to update them and that they rely on to function um, and in essence you know that they they're just they're just dead even though of course functionally they work fine. We also see it of course even more egregiously in the ebook space, right? Where, where people have had books that they quote unquote bought uh, literally disappear off their virtual bookshelves because uh, they just get recalled. Um, yeah. And I would say that a, a, an even more, you know, on point thing for, for the stuff that we share mutual interest in is repair. Uh, because unless you know what's involved in the repair process and how you might get ripped off in the repair process, then, then, really you're, you are just finding out how the device works and not how it fails. And I, I, there's a wonderful writer about, about um, corporate power named David Dyan, who used to be at the intercept. And now he's um, the, I not managing editor, executive editor of the American prospect. And he wrote a book called monopolize. That's one of the best overviews of monopoly and monopoly power. And there's a section in it on the aerospace industry that is really exemplary of this of this um, uh, principle. So there are these private equity ghouls who had the extremely clever idea of figuring out which aerospace components had a single source. So the, the, this gadget was only made by one company. And then they bought all those companies. Uh, and then they dropped the price of their products. So the primary uh, military contractors like Boeing or Raytheon could get these components almost for free. So guaranteed that they would use them as much as possible. But then the replacement cost for the component, the, the price sheet for the U.S. government to buy replacements when those components wore out, they raised the price on by like 10,000%. <laughs> so... It was an incredibly clever way to be yeah. incredibly unethical. Yes. And, you know, I think Uncle Sam deserves some the Martin Shkreli of the aerospace uh, industry, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, except it's if like Martin Shkreli <laughs> made, you know, a nation of diabetics and then raised the price on insulin, as opposed to just noticing that people needed it. He actually created the demand for it. And, you know, it's not like the U.S. military doesn't understand this risk. The Union Army. Lincoln's Union Army refused to buy rifles from vendors unless they agreed to standardize tooling and ammunition for like completely obvious reasons. And, and so the fact that that Uncle Stupid is willing to do this maybe, you know, shows us that this is not a prob problem we can solve with caveat emptor, right? Maybe, maybe we just need a rule that says that you're not allowed to do it. Maybe we need to make this a crime or, or an offense but not as opposed to like a sleazy tactic.
and you mentioned the military. I mean, there have been stories out um, recently, not even recently, within the past few years, about how much the military struggles to keep its equipment working because they have agreed to these exclusive authorized service provider relationships where we're flying people from Ohio to Afghanistan to, you know, change the oil on a Humvee or something. I mean, it's not quite that bad, but it's basically that bad. And it's completely unnecessary, right? Um, uh, you know, as if we couldn't train soldiers to do those serve that service and repair themselves. Yeah. I mean, the, right. The Air Force mechanic is a job. So, right. Right. so the, the, the thing about the army, so I'm, I should confess that I am a anti-imperialist and would happily dismantle America's presence overseas here. But the reason that I think that, that this is significant, the reason I think that this is worth looking at is for the same reason that we look at things like tractors and ventilators mm -hmm. when we talk about right to repair, mm -hmm. because these are instances in which failure modes matter a lot, right? The, the, the reason that every farm has had a forge since we learned how to beat metal is because when you're at the end of a lonely road, and you got to get the crops in because the hailstorm is coming. You can't wait for someone else to fix your tools. Indeed. And the same is true of hospitals, right? The reason hospitals have med techs on staff to fix the ventilators is because when someone is gasping their last breath, you can't wait for Medtronics to send a technician out to type an unlock code into the console that blesses the repair. And you know, these are both even like, though, of course, that's exactly what happened that is in what the early months now. of COVID. Yeah. But. yeah. And so and well, and more to the point, it didn't happen during COVID because right. technicians very We're, rightly refused to get on a, you know, in a flying fart can and, and travel to, to the middle of nowhere to type an unlock code into a console. Well, and also that they're even if they had been willing to those service um, uh you know, those service uh, functions weren't staffed to uh, deal with a pandemic, right? So you're always going to staff them to, you know, deal with what you expect your your traffic, you know, what your the business. A hundred percent. That's an excellent yeah. point. And, yeah. and, and so farmers in the military and, and yeah. hospital med techs, they are all kind of macrocosms mm -hmm. for us mm -hmm. because- you know, while it's it's entirely possible that your phone screen will crack on a day when you don't really need it, mm -hmm. or that you know your cars uh, will stop working on a day where you don't need to go anywhere in particular, we all know that like Murphy's law says, you run out of printer ink the day you need to print out your your thesis or yeah. your lease yeah. or your parole application and your car <laughs> yeah. only breaks down when you know you you need to get to work otherwise you're yep. going to miss a promotion like yep. all of this stuff only happens when you really really need it uh yep. and and the idea that like someone sitting in a boardroom five years and a thousand miles from where you are right now when your stuff stops working knows yep. better than you what trade-offs you should make about repair, right? Like whether it's mm -hmm. worth trusting your corner repair guy, whether, mm -hmm. whether, you know, you, you're willing to use third-party parts or third-party ink, you know, every time HP does something unbelievably sleazy and I get on the phone with their people, they're like, well, you know, some of those third-party inks fade. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, well, you know that my kid's I can, science I can deal with that today, as smart yeah. as my kid is, I'm never going to look at it again. I don't right. care if it fades. She just <laughs> needs to turn it into her, her, you know, bio, uh, grade nine bio, uh, teacher, uh, yeah. and get a, and get a grade on it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 the idea that like some arrogant group of product designers who are thinking more about their shareholders than their customers and who know very well that their customers won't encounter these failure modes until long after they have a lot of costs sunk into the product and that no journalist is going to report on how these products fail, only on how they succeed. That idea is so obviously wrong. And like every one of us has lived it. Every one of us has been there. And um, and and so, you know, I, I think that uh, to, there's a long-winded way of answering, like what's changed about CES is what's changed about CES is that the products fail in new ways and that um, what hasn't changed is our ability to talk about those failures 
has really not um, kept pace with the way that the products fail. And so as a result, you learn nothing of use yeah. from CES. You just learn how things work. I mean, I would be really interested to know what percentage of the products displayed at CES, introduced at CES this year, have some kind of subscription attached to them that you need to, you know, where continued use of the device is contingent on you having uh, an active subscription. My guess is it, it's probably not a hundred percent, but it's it's up there. I I know it's a big number, but I also think that like that's that's just the kind of the most egregious and obvious version of it. Because the less obvious version is that um, it you know if the device has a um, uh, like a firmware update channel, right? You know where uh, you might want to have to you might want to plug it into something else in the future, like. You know, the thing about digital interfaces, the the kind of blessing and curse, if you've got a gadget with like a 1 inch headphone jack, and then someone comes out with a headphone jack that's not shaped like that, then you're going to have to maybe get an adapter for it. Whereas with digital, you can just install some new software, right? If you've got like a thing that plugs into another thing, either by Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or Ethernet or, you know, USB, just one thing plugs into the other, but you might need a software update. Right, you might need to update to the current version, and if that device has any exposed attack surface, so if it has wireless, if it connects to the internet, then you're absolutely going to want to have a firmware update channel, because as a formal characteristic of computers as we understand them, thanks to something called the halting state problem, you cannot find all the bugs in a computer. I mean, not to say that I think most of these companies even do a halfway good job of finding the ones that are easy to find, but there's always going to be ones that are lurking in potentia, particularly where the two devices rub up against each other, right? Where you, you expose new failure modes that were n not present until you added the other gadget. The thing works fine until it doesn't. You know, we, we get versions of this in other areas of public safety, like thalidomide works great unless you're pregnant. And so, you know, until you add this other variable, it doesn't matter how thoroughly you test thalidomide on non-pregnant people, you will never discover the problems of thalidomide until a pregnant person is in your test, test, test mix. And it's not a perfect analogy, but like you will never discover the vulnerabilities of your connected TV until you connect it to another connected device that has its own vulnerabilities that then leak into your television. You know, your TV's camera suddenly... Uh, if even though the TV won't expose it, the downstream device might. And so now someone's looking at you in your living room or crawling your network and stealing your passwords or doing some other horrible thing to you. And, and so, you know, because we can't know all the ways a device can fail, like as a formal matter, it cannot be known all the ways that a device can fail. You are always going to want to have some path for patching it. And if you have a path for patching it, you have a path for downgrading it. Right. That that, you know, and this is this is where. Yeah, this is where Apple and and HP and other companies have really covered themselves in shame. You know, Apple has pushed out. Well, it's been a long time since they had iPods, but Apple pushed out iPod updates that were billed as functionality updates that remove function, that remove function that people might have bought the device for in response to complaints from other industry bodies. You know, the record industry objected at one point to the ability to stream from iTunes to another device uh, elsewhere in the world, uh, even if it's like a one-to-one -one connection. So you could travel and then you could listen to your iTunes con connection at home. And so they just downgraded it you know, by fiat and they deceptively build that as an upgrade. Uh, HP does this all the time. They push out, as has Epson and, and other printer vendors, they say, we have an important security update for your printer. And like, you actually do need security in your printer. Like Anqui did this amazing demo called uh, Print Me If You Dare, where he showed that he could uh, infect printers with malware that would like harvest credit card numbers from printed documents and social security numbers and use them as like waypoints to crawl your network and take over your other devices and whatever. So you do want security updates on your printer, but these weren't security updates. What they did was update all the ways that these printers looked for third-party ink so they could reject the ink cartridges you'd bought at Best Buy. And, and you know, wh where you have these upgrade channels being abused, these security upgrade channels being abused, you do an enormous disservice to the public because 
you 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 convince people not to upgrade their devices, which means that you then make those devices into a long-standing vulnerable <laughs> attack surface. And you know, one of the things that compromised devices do is attack people other than their owners. Sure. Right. They, they join botnets and yeah. they do all kinds of other bad things. I, I think about the iOS updates that Apple's done as well. Um, you, and usually they've, they've withdrawn them after protests that, you know, uh, they'll identify if you have a non Apple standard battery sure. and, you know, they'll kind of degrade the functionality, you know, so yep. you'll get alerts or you'll get this little, you know, uh, exclamation point that's warning you or, you know, the battery monitor feature will be disabled. Right. Not, not bricking the device, but just kind of making it a little shittier, you know? <laughs> there was a point at which if you brought your iPhone to a Genius Bar and they took it off for service, one of the things that they would do without telling you is swap the standard screws for these weird pentalobe screws that Apple got that needed a special screwdriver. So they basically seal your phone so that third-party technicians couldn't work on it. Now, of course, now we have pentalobe screwdrivers, so it doesn't matter. But it was like, it was a... I, I once had a, I once called out an emergency plumber because uh, we bought this house and it turned out that um, the previous owners had uh, dug drains down the side that weren't cleared by the city and the city made them fill them with concrete and the inspector didn't notice. And so the first time we had a big rain, it just flooded and started seep through the walls. So we had to get an emergency plumber out on a weekend. And this guy was like the kind of guy who shows up and charges you $4,000 to work through the weekend in a rainstorm. And he was an operator. And so one of the things he did was like inspect my plumbing. And when he got to my water tank, my water heater, the installer's number was on the water heater. And he tore it off and put a sticker with his phone number over it without asking me. And, you know, like when someone does that in front of your eyes, you're like, oh, dude, you know, like this is not like I can tell like, yeah, I'm going to have you save my house from the flood, but you are never coming out to fix anything else again. Like, you know, hell with you. But when when a genius like replaces the screws on your phone and doesn't tell you, like when was the last time you looked closely at the shape of the slot on the top of the tiny screw on the back of your phone, you just don't even notice until it's too late. But it's the same tactic and it's just as sleazy. Uh, behind a lot of the struggles that organizations are having to, you know, individuals, organizations have repairing devices is this law, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. We just came up on the uh, yet another round of exemptions to this part of the, the law called uh, Section 1201. Um, where uh, people go, as you've described it, on bended knee to the Librarian of Congress to ask for permission to do certain types of repair and service activities, um, uh, you know, jailbreak a phone or, um, you know, fix their tractor. Um, and, and the Librarian of Congress says, okay, you can do this, even though technically it violates the terms of the DMCA. Um, talk a little bit about what we got and didn't get in the most recent round of DMCA exemptions and kind of what the long game is on this, uh, in, in your view. So just for background here, in 1998, Bill Clinton signed the DMCA. It's, it's a big, complicated law. In Section 1201, makes it an offense to bypass what's called an access control. So if you have a copyrighted work and you have something that prevents people from accessing it, then you can't bypass it. And if you traffic in tools or information to enable bypassing of an access control or disabling it, you commit a felony. It's punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine for a first offense. And it, you know, this may sound like a ban on burglary tools, which in its own would be like a little suspect. Those of us who pick locks for fun might 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 feel uh, strongly about that. But if you're like a if you're like a normal person who's never picked a lock, you know, you probably should. But like it might seem reasonable to you. But the, the thing that is um, that you need to realize about this is that a copyrighted work is synonymous with software. So any device that has software in it has a copyrighted work. And that an access control is anything that prevents you from changing the software. And that the authors of Section 1201 declined to limit the law's scope to circumvention, to bypassing an access control, that results in a copyright infringement. So 
irrespective of whether you infringe copyright, bypassing an access control to change a copyrighted work is a copyright violation. And what that has come to mean is that if you have a device that has software in it and you add the thinnest credible access control, it doesn't even have to work very well, um, then anything that anyone does to that device, whether or not a copyright infringement takes place, is potentially a, a, a felony and you can go to prison for five years for doing it. And so, it, it, you know, if you have a... Um, really criminalize what what had previously been um you know the absolutely disputes, business, businesses you know civil civil matters basically business well, might have with another business well or or that wouldn't have been an offense at all so right. so you know to be clear here i've written fiction about this but there's nothing actually fictional about this interpretation of the law if you have a dishwasher that senses RFIDs and the plates that you put in it to make sure that you only use authorized plates with your dishwasher then yeah. figuring out how to wash grandma's china in your dishwasher can send you to prison for five years right right and right. and there there's that is not um it's not hyperbole right like that is in fact how the law is intended to work it's intended to create what um uh jay freeman calls felony contempt of business model mm -hmm. we're we're doing anything not that violates the law but that violates the preferences of the shareholders of the manufacturer can become a crime and so as against all of this, the, the Congress, like as a sop to people who warned them that this was going to happen, they said, all right, we're going to have the Librarian of Congress every three years grant some exemptions. Uh, so you can go before the librarian and you can say, here's a thing I want to do. And the librarian can figure out whether or not it's unreasonable and then give you permission. Now, this is like still we're still in topsy turvy land because like you've never had to ask the librarian of congress if you can wear socks that don't match your shoes where but if your shoes were capable of figuring out what kind of socks you're wearing because they had some software in them you would now need the librarian of congress's permission to wear different socks with your shoes or lace your nikes with non-nike laces you know um but but it may still seem like they're striking a balance to you on its face, right? That, 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 sure, you can show up and you can ask and they can give you permission, but they can't really give you permission because here's the thing. They're granting a use exception, but they maintain that they cannot grant a tools exception. So they might say, you're allowed to jailbreak your phone and install a third-party app store, but they will not say, you're allowed to make a tool that helps someone make that use. So what they're really saying is that each iPhone owner can kind of like gnaw their own circumvention tools out of whole logs with their own teeth, right? That each person can like find the defect in the Apple code and figure out how to exploit it and write the patch. But you, but you can't share that knowledge. And you know, I, I, I went to a, um, a hearing, one of the hearings, the not the last one, but the one before uh, at uh, UCLA when they were doing the 2018 exemptions. And it was in a nice little boardroom at UCLA and there was like a computer and a video screen and a projector and um, the different petitioners and the people who objected to their petitions would stand up and present. So a lot of those presentations came from big entertainment companies like Disney and they used that computer and they used a program called VLC to present it. Now VLC, as it turns out, has a DVD DRM breaking module that it downloads for you. And it's a felony to install VLC and click that box on the computer. And when it was my turn, I stood up and said, like you realize that the poor AV technician at UCLA, who set up this computer for you, has committed a felony, and that your position is that you can't defelonize the act of setting up the computer that we've used to discuss whether or not DMCA 1201 goes too far. And they were like, yeah, but tell it to Congress, right? We didn't write the statute. We just obeyed the statute. So a, a use exemption without a tools exemption is mostly useless. There are some tiny, tiny exceptions around the perimeter, around the periphery. So one is in the repair context. 
Um, there have been granted in the past exemptions to allow um, uh, mechanics to reverse engineer uh, the uh, diagnostic information in cars, say, that uh, and, and in order to get the diagnostics, to, to, de to decode the diagnostics. And so once you've decoded the diagnostics, right, so if you have a lab, you can use that information to figure out how to interpret the diagnostic information. And then you can make a device that doesn't do any reverse engineering. It just uses the information gleaned through your act of reverse engineering. And you can disseminate that tool and you won't be violating the tools provision of section 1201. And so there are like, there are some uses. And then, you know, when we do petition for uses like the right of film professors to rip DVDs to, in order to make video essays and to do other things, um, you know, everybody knows that they're just going to get Handbrake or VLC and do it. And we all just assume that they can get those tools in the same way that like when we when we get the right for farmers to fix their own John Deere tractors, we know that there are these um, anonymously maintained and anonymously authored Eastern European alternative firmwares for John yeah. Deere tractors from Ukraine. Yep. But the problem is that it's it's like it's like decriminalizing uh, recreational drug use but not securing a safe pipeline for recreational drug production. Right. And so you still end up with people who think that they're buying weed, but who are actually buying weed laced with fentanyl. Like right. we don't know what is in that alternative firmware for mm -hmm. Ukrainian, sure. or, you know, Ukrainian yeah. firmware for, for John Deere tractors. Someone should figure it out. Someone should yeah. download it. Those are, those are pretty, figure it out. pretty important pieces of uh, equipment yeah. there that we're, we're putting uh, rogue firmware on. Um, right. And it doesn't need to happen. I, I know, for example, one of the exemptions this, this time around was for um, uh, game console uh, owners to be able to replace optical drives uh, on their game consoles because these are the types of parts that wear out. Um, are completely replaceable, and yet um, doing so would have been technically a violation of the DMCA. But I guess the, one of the problems now is that the digital rights management is so uh, severe on these game consoles that even just having the right, uh, you still have to figure out how to defeat the DRM to do it. Yeah, um, and, and I'll give you like the most extreme example of this. Yeah. So the DMCA comes to us through a, a UN treaty, the WIPO Copyright Treaty, uh, which is uh, the, actually this pair treaty is WIPO copyright treaty and the WIPO, WIPO performers and phonograms treaties, the internet treaties from 96 and countries all over the world have adopted their own version of this in the EU. There's something called the European copyright directive of 2001 article six of the EU CD mirrors all of this language. Mm -hmm. And so Norway eventually implemented UCD article six, which is like DMC 12 once this anti-circumvention rule. Norway's not part of the EU, but they follow EU rules. It's kind of complicated. So I went to Norway to debate the, the Norwegian minister responsible for this implementation. And one of the things he was, he was lauding was the fact that there was an exemption that allowed people who were visually impaired to bypass DRM in order to break ebook, uh, ebooks out of proprietary format so that you could run them through braille readers and text-to-speech and other assistive technologies. And I said, but you don't have a tools exception. And he said, no. And I said, like, well, so how does this work? Like the way that your law is written, each blind person, each blind child has to, yeah, has to break Adobe ebook reader on their own and that none of them are allowed to tell anyone else how they did it. And if they do, they commit a felony. Like how many visually impaired people, how many non-visually impaired people can take advantage of that exception? And so, you know, I, I, I do think that the 1201 proceedings are important. They do create some exceptions we can use. There's a right to repair exception. There's, there's these exceptions that allow for diagnostic tool creation and so on. More to the point, they create this like evidentiary uh, record where an element of the U.S. federal government admits that Section 1201 has got like deep structural problems and that they can't fix it. That was the point of my getting up and talking to them about VLC, because I wanted them to say on the record, this is a problem and we can't fix it. The law is busted. And so we get this like growing body of evidence, right? There's this, this growing record that says that the law needs to be revisited, which is helpful, but it doesn't fix the law. It does help us in other contexts. So, you know, in, in July of 2020, the U.S. trade representative arm twisted the government of Mexico 
into enacting a much more sweeping version of this law, uh, an even worse one without the exemptions and so on. And we use the the um, copyright, uh, the, tw the triennials, these 1201 hearings, we use their findings to, as part of the campaign that eventually got the Mexican Supreme Court to review that law, right, to suspend and review the law. So it, it isn't useless, but it's a lot of blood and treasure we have to spill every three years that that at best just proves that there's a problem, but doesn't solve the problem.